Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and with Formula One coming out of hibernation for the build-up to the 2021 campaign, we asked for your questions about the coming season with topics including calendar disruption, the aerodynamic rule changes, Honda engines, and Lando Norris's top team potential. I'm Ed Straw, and my guests with all the answers are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, first up, I have got a question for you. Whatever happened to Scott's people? Yes, it's a very good question. Um, I th- well, I think twenty twenty happened. Um, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of negatives and um, bad consequences to to twenty twenty. Um, a year we're all very happy to 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 forget. And unfortunately, uh, Scott's people was one of the the casualties. Basically, once the season started, we basically had a race every week for four months, didn't we? So um, I, I don't think we did many non, uh, non, non-race non podcasts, but it's an excellent, excellent point, Ed. So maybe, maybe this is, this is the chance, this is the opportunity for a rebirth because this kind of podcast that we've got planned is basically an, 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 an extension of the idea of the, of, of, of Scott's people, but just with much more serious questions. Uh, so, so maybe this can be the, uh, this can be the, the, the point of the the revival so I'll, I'll have i'll have a think and see if i can deploy some kind of silly question on social media over the next few days after this podcast is released yeah that's that's your challenge mark hughes have you got any suggestions for questions scott could ask um yeah well um what what what, what were scott's people <laughs> what a, what, you what remember we made <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit at the end of the podcast when you could just sort of switch yeah, off and I do, Scott I just do, talk. I do know really. <laughs> <laughs> we can invite suggestions from Scott's people as to what the next topic on the revival of Scott's people should be. So there we go. We, we've we've sorted uh, we've sorted that out. Uh, anyway, we should probably move on to some. I was going to say more serious questions, but I don't want to. I don't want to denigrate Scott's people. It's of course an important thing, which is why we shall be bringing it back. So as usual, we're going to bounce between us each of us uh, taking various questions we'll try and get through as many as we can as ever we've had loads so sorry we won't be able to get to all of them but first up Scott let's direct this at you Andrew McLean asks how much do you think the calendar will continue to be disrupted particularly in relation to street tracks like Monaco and Baku that will have more logistical challenges will we see a return of some of the one-off tracks like Portimao and Turkey that we saw last season uh yeah so I'll, I'll answer the last bit First, we, I think we, I think we will see a return to some of those tracks. Um, at the moment, I think Algarve and Imola are the are the two that pr- seem pretty likely to to be added on to F1's Plan B calendar, so to speak, for 2021. Um, I think quite a, there's going to be quite a lot of disrupt, disruption in terms of the number of events that get moved around, or or in terms of just how different the final 2021 calendar looks to the provisional, but. I don't think there's going to be, or I hope there's not going to be a huge amount of disruption in the sense that the calendar's turbulent all year and we've got changing objectives and late alterations and stuff like this. I think there is going to be there is going to be a need for the continuation of F1's flexibility and its ability to um, to, to react. 
there's a piece that you can read on the website along the lines of how the calendar is changing significantly already. Um, so I'm at risk of plagiarism myself here in this this answer. I know that's I know that, that that's not how plagiarism works. Before any pedants uh, pedants sneak in, and by that I mean you, Ed. Um, but basically, I think Australia itself is responsible for several other calendar e- events. Let's call them because because of that race being postponed, we're going to have preseason testing in a different place and potentially a week or two later. Uh, then there's some end of year surgery to find a home for Australia, which probably means moving Brazil forward a week and Saudi and Abu Dhabi back a week. China sounds uh, like it, that race might be a bit iffy. And as I said earlier, that brings Imola and Algarve into play at different times. So I think we're going to get an earlier than normal European schedule and some extra races there. Uh, and as for the street, ra- uh, street tracks that Andrew mentions, uh, they are particularly vulnerable, given that they do take a lot longer to organise, but but there is still time. Last year, Monaco was cancelled in March, I think, so we've got some wiggle room to make those sort of events work. Yeah, and of course, you can listen to more on the calendar and the postponement of Australia in our last podcast that we uh, released uh, about the Australian Grand Prix probably being postponed. Mark, moving on to you next, FS12R asks, is there any chance that F1 postpones the 2022 next generation car? I think as things stand at the moment, the chances of that happening are, are very slim. Um, everything is still um, based around the uh, the introduction of the new cars um, next next year. Uh, it would have to be a, a crisis situation um, with the virus. Uh, well, you know, additional to that that we have already um, that would would put us in a place where the um, the income was so uh, so reduced that uh, emergency measures were were needed, and that that would definitely be classed as an emergency measure. It's something that could be done to save um, some spend, but um, yeah, I, I think we're probably past uh, the point now where where that would have. Um, uh, where we could consider that to be a likelihood, I think um, we, we, if we are making the assumption that um, the, there's going to be continued disruption this year, uh, but that the um, the absolute questioning whether we're going to have a season at all that we were in um, in March this uh, last year, um, we, we, we're, we're hopefully not in that situation. So. Um, I think it would only be something of that nature that would uh, cause the regs to be postponed for another year. Yeah, and of course, the, uh, the the possibility of postponing the rules for another year was actually discussed last year during that that shutdown in the first half of the year, but was uh, but was rejected. Ferrari, in particular, was was against that. But yeah, it, it doesn't hopefully seem necessary at the moment. No, there's been quite a lot, hasn't there, um, already in t- in the way of uh, cutting costs and trying to future proof um, the championship. And I, I also think we've probably worth uh, remembering that the significance of the, the the budget cap coming into place for this year now means that development for the new technical rules is done within the budget cap. So that wasn't going to be the case before. So there's almost like a, I don't really know the best way to put it, but there is um, there is basically added policing, isn't there? Or, or added reinforcement of the, of the cost management side of things that wouldn't have been the case if F1 had persevered with the, with the new rules coming in for 2021 last year would have been super super difficult obviously that's a sort of more forward looking uh looking question we haven't even started the 2021 season yet but on that same vein i'll throw the next question to you ed which is from uh, tom miller 
who uh, who says that Lando Norris has never really been talked about as a candidate for Mercedes, Ferrari, or a Rebel drive. If he got the better of Daniel Ricciardo at McLaren this season, would that change? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that any driver outperforming Daniel Ricciardo over a season would get a bump in reputation because that's not easy. The question is whether Norris can do that despite the advantages of being the, the incumbent at McLaren. Well, there hasn't been much top team buzz surrounding him. We should remember that the big teams did their driver signing business before the 2020 season really got going. And there are other more experienced candidates uh, in the mix. But I don't think there's any reason why he wouldn't be on the radar in the future. We probably do need to see a tiny bit more from him to be a compelling case for one of the very top drives. And we should remember too that McLaren finished third in the Constructors' Championship last year. So there's not actually that many moves that would be a positive one for, for him. He measured up pretty well against Carlos Sainz over the past two years, although he was just that step behind him once you factor in everything. That's not really a criticism as such, because Sainz is a formidable, very professional driver. So being as close to him as Norris has been is a, an impressive start to his F1 career. Really, we just need to see greater consistency, a bit more incisiveness at times in races. And these aren't big criticisms, because overall he has been very strong. But to make that emphatic case for a big team move, there, there needs to be that last step and there's no doubt that he can do it because he's he's already a very good Grand Prix driver and there's a an upside still to come but ultimately he's also in a, a very good place isn't he with an upwardly mobile McLaren he has to regard Ricardo coming in as an opportunity to show his class he's got the continuity he's got the experience he's got plenty of impressive performances under his belt a few big results so he has to be aiming to match Ricardo but the problem is that's not easy for anyone no matter how good you are so that that's a, a very very big ask yeah and also the um the the big three teams of those six seats there's at the moment only one that you might say is is you know um potentially available in, in a year's time and that's um uh the, the one that currently occupied by Sergio Perez um the, the, there's commitment at Ferrari with their two drivers for several years gone forward, there's um, if we assume Lewis is going to continue for another three years or so, um, there's the 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 if Valtteri is not in the other car, the assumption is George Russell is in it. Um, so that really just leaves um, the the Red Bull. Um, so if we're assuming that Max is staying there, then then yeah, it depends on uh, how Sergio measures up this year to, as to whether there'd be a, um, a possible opportunity there. So it, it's even, even if he does somehow manage to um, go head to head and with, with Daniel, it's, it's difficult to see necessarily the, the, the places that would open up for him. And McLaren's hardly a bad place to be anyway. So I don't think it's a particular crisis. They, they are a big fan of him and yeah, hopefully if he if he continues the upward curve this year, he's got a, a place there for the foreseeable future. Scott, moving on to your next question. This is from Neil B. To what extent do you think the internal and political turmoil of Honda departing F1 at the end of 2021 will affect Red Bull and Alpha Tauri throughout the season? I think uh, I think there has to be some kind of impact, but I I would imagine or, or maybe hope that it would only be minor and inconsequential in the grand scheme of things because. Um, the main thing to remember is that Honda is fully committed to the end of 2021 and the big work that has taken obviously the money from the Japanese side is is happening now or has happened already because they've overhauled the 2020 engine. Um, 
And you've also got to remember that there is the continuation plan still in place that Ripple wants to carry on that Honda engine beyond 2021. So it's in everyone's best interest to to work a, a, as well as possible and 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 avoid uh, avoid any issues there because I do expect that plan to include various Honda personnel carrying on. So it's not like anyone wants to burn any bridges. Um, and and similar to that, it's also not the F1 side of the organization that's given up. It's it's Japan that's that's pulled the plug. I think everyone who's tied to the F1 project on the ground and in Sakura, Honda's R&D facility, I think they want to succeed. And I think they were really hurting when when the decision was made to walk away. Uh, they, Honda still haven't achieved the ultimate goal. So I really think that with the enthusiasm Honda's F1 team has for the two Red Bull organizations and vice versa, it's a relationship that's worked really well and and seems to be seems to be very fulfilling for for every every party plus the motivation to end Honda's official participation on a high it should be a case of avoiding any turbulence but should's a pretty short word and it has huge implications in a world like formula 1 yeah and it does seem that it's not like it this is a a wind down season in the conventional sense is it they seem to be going flat out so i think we can have some some hope that it will be a relatively straightforward yeah most of the the concerns will be about the longer term future and Honda seem fairly on board as you say so yeah I think we're all hoping that uh, that the Red Bull Honda package will uh, will surprise a few of us uh, this year, even if we're not necessarily expecting it. Mark, a question from Ben Twitchen: How poor would Lance Stroll need to be this year before Lawrence Stroll has to make a decision? If the team are knocking on the door of podiums every week, then poor performances are going to be highlighted even more. I think that's more perspective from from outside the team. And I think if you put yourself in Lawrence's position, um, he's a it's it's his son's career that, that this whole his ownership of the team is predicated um, against. It's also, I think, to someone of uh, Lawrence's wealth and disposition, uh, it's. Not going to be the end of the world if the team loses a few points, a few opportunities here and there, and finishes fourth instead of third or fifth instead of fourth. I don't think it's being measured in the same way as it would be at a a, a more corporate um, structured team, let's say. And also, I don't think that um, Lance's performance are going to be so bad that uh, his drive would would ever be under threat. Um, I think the the trajectory of uh, Lance's um, performances is is up, is, 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 you know, from one season to the next is on the upward curve. And yeah, there are still many um, gaps and inconsistencies, but um, his peaks are very high and he is becoming steadily more uh, able to join those peaks up. So I don't see any reason to assume that his performance is going to get worse. I, I think if anything, they're going to get either remain inconsistent and that's that it'll become apparent. That's just the sort of performer he is or B they, they will improve. But I, I certainly don't see him worsening. I think, um, I think Lance, the Lance has obviously got a big season ahead of him, but he, he is also still very young. Uh, and, I, and that is one, that is one thing that I probably forget. Uh, I'm quite critical of Lance because you do see that there's a driver with ability there and we've seen it right from his European Formula 3 uh, title win there were some moments that season that were just genuinely good it wasn't it wasn't just a case of okay you're in Prima and everything is you're basically buying the title there were some moments there where it was just genuinely good driving and we've seen that in Formula 1 as well 
Um, I, I do think there still needs to be quite a big step in, in maturity and focus from his side. I, I do wonder if someone like Vettel coming into the team is going to be really useful for that. Obviously, Vettel, full-time world champion, loads of experience. And um, we know how highly Charles Leclerc thought of Vettel at Ferrari and how much he feels that being alongside someone like Vettel really moved him on. The question is whether Stroll's got that sort of same level of application and um, sort of in, in, intuition and desire to learn from a Vettel that, that Leclerc had. That would be a doubt that I do still have in my mind. Um, I think I think it would need something pretty spectacular for, for, for Lance to be shown the exit door, but I completely agree with, with Mark. I, I don't really see sort of a a decline coming if if anything I, I think there is quite a lot of potential there still to be exploited he's he's a decent enough Grand Prix driver he's an okay middling team number two ultimately I think they they can do better the one thing in terms of what should happen not what I think is going to happen because I agree with the, the point Mark you made immediately that you didn't really see anything changing Lawrence Stroll has recently talked about the Aston Martin rebrand and, oh, this is all about premium partners doing things. The, the, Lawrence, the, the There's the five-star way and there's the Lawrence way and all this kind of thing. And you kind of think, well, if you're trying to talk up your team like this, how does that fit in with putting your your son in the team if he's going to continue to operate as a, should we say, a three-star F1 driver? Now, that's only taking what he's saying. If he was saying, look, the main thing is that I want to have this team working well for my son, etc. So I, I just slightly dislike the messaging being a little bit, have your cake and eat it, if you see what I mean. You know, Stroll Jr., perfectly decent driver. He's, I, I certainly wouldn't agree it's poor performances, but he's not getting the maximum out of the car. What I would ideally like to see is for it not to become a point, because you want to see drivers doing their best and fulfilling their potential. Actually, it's not really a case of having favourites. I'd like to see Stroll getting the most out of himself because you want to see drivers doing their best. And he, and he has had some moments. He's also had some disappointments. He also had some bad luck last year. So, yeah, let's see how, it, how he gets on. Let's just hope it ceases to become a discussion because he uh, he starts to fulfil a greater amount of that potential. I hope you've not tired yourself to, out too much with that answer, Ed, because the next question's uh, for you. It's uh, from Dean Maddox who, who asks... Uh, if the aero changes for 2021 are to safeguard the current spec tyres, why would new tyres being tested during 20? Surely that contradicts the aero changes and ends up costing more in development. Well, that set of four aero rule tweaks are indeed to stop downforce levels running out of control and overloading the tyres. The new tyres we should really talk about more as modified tyres because they retain the same compounds that have been used for the past two seasons, but there are modifications to the construction to make them a bit more robust and as we saw last year there were problems at the first Silverstone race so even if downforce levels were the same or only slightly lower there's still a benefit in improving the the strength safety wise and to just ensure the product's better. They're also designed to run at lower pressures which is a positive thing given the often sky high pressures that uh, minimums that, that teams are issued with. There was a lot of complaining when they were first tried but I think it was a little exaggerated. The team's we're very familiar with the existing tyres and there's a necessity to adapt the setup. The balance of these tyres is slightly more understeering, not massively so, but a bit of a change. So I suspect once teams get proper running, they'll adapt the cars and it won't be a big deal. And actually, I think the drivers slightly trip themselves up actually because they're, they're resolved to keep raising concerns about the tyres as their kind of unofficial policy to keep the pressure up on ensuring they get the kind of tyre performance they want, particularly for, for 22 so they all piled in on these ones, having not really factored in the, the case that they're not brand new products, they're not meant to cure all ills. They were just a pragmatic, small tweak to the existing ones. 
once they try the 2022 rubber, which will of course be designed for the 22-inch wheel rims, then perhaps they'll have something more legitimate to complain about. That could get quite lively. Also, I think, Scott, the one of the motivations for these tyres, for the, the modified tyres, which are slightly different in the, in the shoulder area, um, stronger in the, in the shoulder area, was, as Ed says, to allow them to run at lower pressures um, to make them more raceable so you don't have such a, um, like an on-off switch at, at the uh, at the temperature threshold um, that would that would make them more, it would make them easier to, um, in theory, being able to run them at lower pressures makes them, in theory, easier to bring into the correct work and temperature window. And, and so that that's, was one of the key motivations behind this tweak to the tyres rather than, purely being about a concern about being um, you know uh, overstressed by increases in downforce uh, so yeah I think the two things in uh, aren't um, correlated um, 100% to each other moving back to you Scott a question that's connected to your to your last one in fact that you answered is from R Dunn what is the latest date Red Bull have to confirm their new engine supplier Oh, well, technically in the summer, um, if they don't have a Honda engine plan in place or agreeable, there is a mechanism in the rules that um, if, if, if you don't have one, in, if you don't have an engine supply in the summer, you're guaranteed a supply from the manufacturer that, that currently has the fewest customers at, at, at present or represented by the, the fewest teams. Um, so for Red Bull, that would mean a, a Renault reunion that neither the team nor the engine partner would, would want. Uh, but I'm pretty sure the Red Bull and Honda continuation plan is imminent. Uh, as I understand it, there's no obstacle on the Red Bull Honda side. Um, it is a matter of getting the engine freeze clarified. They they are broadly in agreement. I don't think it's 100% done uh, from between Red Bull and Honda, I mean. Uh, it is basically just dependent on that being pushed through. So basically the engine freeze gets confirmed or you know at least confirmed to Red Bull and Honda and they'll sign their agreement. That's the bit with the pressing deadline, though. I think that has to happen ASAP, probably this month. Um, initially, Red Bull was saying it had to be done by November, then it had to be done by December. Um, and the reason that's obviously more pressing, even though we've still got obviously a, over a year before the 2022 season starts, uh, is because Red Bull needs to tool up. It needs to make sure it has everything in place. If this is definitely 100% going to be the direction that it's going in, then it needs to put everything into into action, which means um, upgrading the facility that it has in in Milton Keynes, taking over uh, part of the uh, of one one of Honda's facilities in Milton Keynes uh, uh, as well. So there is an awful lot of work to do there. There's no, there isn't work to do on the engine upgrade side because that is currently being taken care of. Uh, care of by by honda in in sakura but it's getting everything in place so that when honda pulls the plug i presume it would be from jan 1 2022 that rebel suddenly becomes responsible for that engine that they have everything that they need and that is something that they can't do if for example this dragged on all the way to november or december this year they wouldn't then suddenly in the space of three weeks be able to tool up everything they need in, in, in Milton Keynes to develop, not, not even to develop their own engine, to even maintain an engine of this complexity. But it is looking pretty likely to happen that everyone will agree. Well, they certainly, Renault will be motivated to agree to facilitate the, the necessary freeze, won't they? Yeah, I, 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 think, I think it's really complicated though um, that, because there's different, that, or at the end of last year at the very least, there, there were different obstacles at different stages of it 
you know, Ferrari were Ferrari were talking about much more fundamental, bigger picture things like having the next gen engine sort of outlined and brought forward from 2026 to 2025. Um, Renault had an issue with uh, an engine freeze coming into play at the end of 2021 for the start of 2022 because they've got development of their engine in play. So they were saying, okay, well, maybe we can have a compromise, but that compromise would be a mid-2022 or end-2022 uh, engine freeze and end 2022 engine freeze is basically in line with the regulations as they currently exist so that doesn't work for Red Bull and uh, w- within that Red Bull and and Ferrari were talking about having some kind of uh, sort of safety net for any engine manufacturer that's massively behind by the time the freeze comes into play and therefore having some kind of forced method of convergence which is basically balance of performance uh, and that was what Mercedes was massively, massively against. There was a hugely impassioned rant from Toto Wolff about why that was anti-F1 and would be the death of Grand Prix racing and, and, and all of this. So there was an awful lot to try to to, to reconcile. And also within that, um, or sorry, that was all operating within the much bigger picture of F1's next-gen engine, sustainable fuels and all sorts. So really messy situation. And it didn't seem like an easy one to 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 solve, even though it was in everyone's best interest to find a compromise. Also, what um, on a related topic, do we know um, we had any suggestions yet if uh, the, the Honda continuation program um, is indeed the, the, the what, what the uh, what's going to happen? Um, what what that engine is going to be called? No, I was uh, I was pondering this uh, at the end of last year because I, I can't imagine that I can't imagine there'll be any kind of hangover from 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 honda because there's not going to be any input beyond 2021 i would imagine um i wonder if it's going to be a good opportunity for a branding exercise because obviously they've um they've lost aston martin as a as a as a primary sponsor a title sponsor um with aston martin obviously then becoming racing point um of their way around rather um, and it's and, and it's something that they've done before because obviously they had uh, when they weren't allowed to call it Renault they obviously called the the engine a, a Tag Heuer engine so maybe they maybe they'll find another premium stopwatch brand or something to 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 christen the engine. Well, then they could um, do it in tribute to the um, the Honda tribute in the Frankenheimer Grand Prix film where the um, the Honda company was called a Nakamura or something like that, wasn't it? So the uh, which was you know so. It was in tribute to Honda, but you could um, do it in tribute to the, the tribute. So. Yeah, there, there's a few ways to do it. It's, it's quite fun, um, actually, sort of thinking about how how that kind of thing would work. And um, but but I wonder. I, I suspect it'll end up coming down to some kind of boring corporate or commercial thing where it's either it's a sponsored engine and they name, they call the engine after a some kind of mega buck sponsor deal. Or there's some kind of like nod to wh- whichever third party that they they work with. I don't know whether let's say let's say for example it was mugen that they they went down the road with i don't think it will be um i think it'll be red bull's own and they'll probably use some expertise from a, like a company like avl but maybe there'll be some kind of nod to whoever they partner up with with, with with on the engine whatever whatever the final decision given that this is a this is an organization or a race team that has teased some awesome launch liveries in recent years and then teased don't worry we're definitely going to change our livery this year and then it's been exactly the same livery every year every year every year i'm almost certain the final name for the engine is going to be much more boring than it could have been actually you're all wrong about what it's going to be called i think it's going to follow in the footsteps of some previous continue engine uh, continuation engines so it's going to be something like megatron or supertech so i was megatron thinking was a continuation. Supertech. <laughs> 
mega and super. So you need so I don't know. It could be called the awesome something or other. Or, or, or like just, an just ex, a really bad name. Or like an X in there because like you know an X would make it sound cool. The awesome X engine. There we go. <laughs> the X awesome. The, the key that is, sounds like it, sh- it was formerly awesome. <laughs> the key is it should sound like the name of an unlicensed generic single seater racing car. Sort of one to forty three models that you'll get. Yeah, or some dodgy one. Transformers rip off. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, yeah, we can look forward to that. Mark, moving on to you. Philip Jeffrey asks: Will the changes to the floor impact teams running higher rake to a lesser or greater extent? Um, it's it's one of those questions that's open a bit to to debate. Uh, the people that have come up with this in um, the the technical part of FOM um, have sought to do it in a way that they hope will not impact more upon one philosophy than another. But that doesn't mean to say that it, it, it won't. So the last time there was a significant rev ch- uh, reg change about the, um, it was about the underbody strakes on the nose, which I think was 2018. Um, it did impact very heavily upon uh, the cars that had not as big a distance between the front axle line and the barge board. That that was Red Bull, and it was one of the reasons why the, it took Red Bull quite a long time to get that particular car working. Um, so that these these things, you it's very difficult to um, anticipate the effect they're going to have. Um, cutting cutting the downforce in the way it's done with the with the floor and with a few little tweaks on diffuser and and. Uh, break, rear brake ducts will it will in theory um, reduce reduce the overall downforce obviously um, it's whether whether it will make a car that's high rake and therefore is, is higher off the ground at low speeds more susceptible to stall than it already is or less it's a difficult one to say and you, you'd really need to do um, an awful lot of CFD study to be able to answer it, and I think we won't have a proper answer until uh, you know good, good way into the season. Picking up on that, the next question from Matt Wilson is is of a, of a technical nature as well. So Ed, I'm lobbing over to you. Losing downforce will this mean more mechanical grip will have to be found by the teams, and will this be better for following and overtaking? Front wings are staying the same though which cause a lot of the error disruption, should they have been changed too? Well, the rule tweaks for downforce levels are about containment rather than a, a significant hacking back of downforce. The aim with that uh, that 21 package that, that Mark was talking about was to basically remove 10% of the downforce simply by just hacking bits off, but with the view that they teams would claw back half half of this once they re-optimise and, and redesign. Although different teams say different things about where they're going to get back to. Some are bullish about no loss, some much, much less so. Whatever happens, it's not going to be a step change. And I don't think it'll fundamentally change that mechanical versus aero split in terms of of grip levels. And the reality is that aero grip overpowers the potential of mechanical grip. That's just a, a fact of life. I think it's a myth to say you can replace aero grip with the same level of mechanical grip. If you could do that, then you wouldn't actually need the aero to be <laughs> to be on the car necessarily. Maybe you could make a few less compromises with the suspension for aero reasons if that balance was changed a little bit to get a little bit more grip. But any gains you make from improving mechanical grip will be more than offset by losing aero optimization. 
And even if there was complete freedom to produce all new cars for this year, I don't think the arrow rule tweaks are anywhere near big enough to be any kind of game changer in that regard. So when it comes to following, et cetera, I think it's going to make make no difference. And we should remember that everything about the 2021 rules is about pragmatism, stopgap, adapting, and just making everything work in a contained way. It's not about having particular effects on the racing or anything it's just to make everything work properly for this this hold over year rather than changing anything 2022 regs they're a different matter they're the they're the potential game changer although even then we shouldn't get tricked into believing that that magical amounts of mechanical grip can be found to offset aero grip because it just doesn't work well scott coming back to you chemical formula one says is it safe to say Haas will be the team right at the bottom this year gunter steiner has already talked about problems with this year's car and the fact they kept nikita mazepin probably sums up their desperate need for money this season just to stay afloat uh i'll tackle mazepin first because because he's an important topic um we know he's primarily an F1 in the first place because of a big commercial package. Um, he's obviously a, a, a decent driver, a race winner in, in, in Formula 2, and he's earned a super license, which means as far as the FIA and F1 are concerned, he's, um, he's got the credentials to, to be on the grid. Um, and while it's, But while it's impossible to say it with certainty, given we don't know exactly what's gone on behind the scenes, the, I'm, I'm, I suspect the only reason he's still going to be driving in F1 um, as as a rookie next year, uh, sorry this year, um, after his late twenty twenty controversy, is that commercial package as well? So I think the that sort of desperate need is for for for, for the cash is is probably accurate. We do have plans to address that Mazapin stuff more specifically and and separately. I won't say too much more on it here, but the main reason I I make this point is because I can think of very few instances of a team being dragged through the mud like Hass has over the last six weeks or so, yet the driver responsible for that um, has avoided any tangible measure of um, significant you know, public consequence, uh, which shows what that, that, that Haas needs him. Um, from a competitive point of view on track, I think uh, Haas will struggle. Uh, the team itself was saying pretty much all through 2020 that it would be braced for a difficult 2021 as well. It's got an all-rookie uh, driver lineup. Um it obviously had the problems of 2020, but obviously Ferrari wants to make a big step with the engine. And I know the car was undercooked in 2020 as well. And they don't think they, they, they developed it through, through the season. So there is still room for them to, to make a step. I guess it just depends whether they end up the least worst of the, the two Ferrari customers alongside Alpha. And obviously what Williams is, is able to do as the, the team that didn't score a point in, in 2020, but for, from the sort of Haas point, of, of on-track competitive what Haas can bring to the table I guess one of you might be able to elaborate though because uh, you've probably got better insight than me into why that lack of development was the case and how limited it actually was yeah I think the basic potential of the Haas was probably um, quite a bit higher than it, the, the 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 cars it was racing against actually it was probably had it been a normal season and had they got the development funds in place that they would have had if they'd been getting paid from a 2023 race season um, and everything was as normal and there'd be no pandemic, um, we would have seen quite a different competitive shape um, at that part of the the grid and no reason to believe that the Haas wouldn't have been solidly in that midfield group where it had um, been a couple of years before. And they nailed the problem that they had with um, the 2019 car, and it uh, I think had had it 
the funds just not been frozen completely frozen from Gene Haas, then you would have you would have seen the you would have seen a um completely different picture for for that team. But going forward into this year, that those um, financial circumstances are have been lessened, but the focus is still not going to be on 21. The focus is very much on 22 and trying to take maximum advantage of this reset of the regulations. And so the team, that's why the team have taken two rookies, have taken this opportunity to, A, get some income in from um, two well-placed rookies in that sense, and B, to make their learning year um, not you know, in, fairly inconsequential in terms of the impact it has on on the results because they they're figuring on being at the back anyway. Um, so that the, the, the drivers will be um, have fuller data banks and be in better shape when hopefully the car's better in twenty twenty two. So yeah, I, I I really don't um I don't see Haas being anywhere other than at the back unless there's some spectacular errors made it somewhere else. Yeah. And- <laughs> Ultimately, the talking point around Haas is about off-track stuff. It's about Mazepin, isn't it? And they've they've attempted to kind of sweep this to one side and and draw a line under it. But what has been certainly what's out in public, what they have said about what they may or may not have done, the process they've gone through, it's not good enough. What has been said, so we want to see some more on that and evidence. There's been a proper proper process gone through and and and, and an acceptable outcome is reached because there's still some big questions to answer there. Mark, Stuart Henry asks, does Renault need another team to supply engines to so they can drive development? If so, who would be the most likely team? It's always um, it's always good to have more than one team because, it does, as, as the question implies, it does drive development. You're getting double or triple the engine miles and problems become apparent sooner and you get more feedback and, 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 and. As long as you have the production capabilities to, um, to be able to do that supply without it impacting upon your development uh, abilities and your understanding then yeah it's it's, it's always um two heads are better than one and three three is even better uh the obvious candidate for the the other team um <laughs> would be red bull but we've we've covered that already and um i don't think it's going to be red bull uh, for for the the reasons we've already talked about um yeah Haas would be an, an, an obvious candidate you might have said Williams, except Williams have just extended their um, partnership with Mercedes, or deepened it rather, in in terms of the the hardware that they're now going to be taking from Mercedes. So yes, possibly Haas. Um, where else? There's nowhere else really that would um, that, that would suggest itself as suitable. Ed, next question for for you. Um, we we talked obviously at the very beginning about the preseason testing and the, but that was obviously related to the to the dates where it's going to be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obviously, what's not going to change or doesn't look like it's going to change is the fact that it's um, three days of uh, <laughs> of testing, which isn't much time at all. So Robbo asks, do you think the relative lack of preseason testing this year will have any impact on the competitive order at the start of the season? I doubt if it'll have any. F- fundamental or transformative impact it might hold a few teams back especially those integrating new drivers and obviously the biggest challenge there is is faced by mclaren which has got daniel ricardo as well as a switch to the mercedes 
power unit. But what the lack of testing could do is is magnify problems that are already there. So if you need to do some unexpected troubleshooting, if there's something you're not understanding that you need to diagnose and then test solutions for, less running could put you in, in deeper trouble than you would otherwise be in and mean you're carrying weaknesses further into the season than you than you otherwise would. You also don't have the chance to do that one chunk of testing, then have a few days and then come back and apply what you've learned. I suspect it will have a small impact in terms of some of the teams and drivers being better prepared than others in the first few races, particularly when it comes to those who are carrying problems. But I don't think it's going to be season-defining. I don't think we'll get to the end of the season and say, well, the story would have been fundamentally different with a full chunk of testing. Maybe if there's a big championship fight and there's one team disadvantage in the first two or three races and that that's decisive, it could do. But I think it's more just amplifying those who are already in a little bit of trouble than, than than changing anything the way i sort of saw it impacting is if either of the two teams what i think have got sort of the most fundamental engine changes sort of have some kind of problem because by that point it'll probably be too late to to have like a proper solution for the very start of the season although the way um the calendar might get rejigged could save them so i think that's red bull and mclaren because Red Bull have got the 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 the, the big um, Honda change, and it's the first time since a really really significant architectural change in 2017 that that Honda have sort of been willing to 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 call their new engine a genuinely new engine rather than an evolution of the previous design. Um, and obviously, it went really badly the last time they did that in 2017. I don't think this is as significant, but I've spoken to the the chiefs at Honda, and they are. They are aware that the big risk is that they turn up for Barcelona. Something doesn't work in reality the way it's meant. It looks like on the dyno and on on the on the data, uh, and they and they don't have time. By then, it's too late. Um, it, it's too late to make a fundamental change for the start of the uh, of the season. So so they might be in trouble. And obviously, McLaren is the only team actually changing engine supplier. So if there's something that they've not quite got right there with installation or cooling or something like that, then maybe that'll be um, a problem for the for the very start of the season. I was going to actually follow up that question with maybe maybe best is is for Mark to answer but we, because obviously we were talking before with, with a couple of answers actually already about the changes for for this year aero wise. Um do you remember when when the front wing rule changed in 2019 and it was really interesting to see sort of like what the solutions were with the whether you know teams went inboard or outboard and it was with the leading teams, it was like, okay, who's picked like the right direction here? Obviously, it's not quite the same, but with the changes at the rear of the floor, is there any? Is, do you think that there's much scope for interpretation of those rules? That that is the sort of thing that could catch a team out uh, at the very beginning. Is that the sort of thing that will we, need refining or or can be refined if 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 there is a way to get it badly wrong? Whether these reg any any reg changes triggers. Um, uh, a clever interpretation by one team that everybody else then smacks their head and thinks, yeah, of course, we should have done that and follows it down that route. It, it's, it, it's hard to say, but I, I wouldn't have thought so with, with these. Reg- it really is quite a simple, you know, just trim a bit off the floor. Um, uh, but who knows? Who knows? Somebody, somebody may have re- reassessed the priorities and come up with a different layout of, of some component layout or, or something like that that allows the body to be done done in a different way that um, claws back a lot of the the regulation loss. So we, it, it's one of those things you can't really call in advance. Um, 
So I, I doubt it because I, I don't think the rule changes significant enough. But you, you never know. Um, coming back to the point you were making about the the new Honda engine, um, also the uh, Ferrari is going to be in a similar position because its um, it, its new engine is going to be every bit as um, differentiated, let's say, from the twenty twenty engine is as, as Honda's. So. Um, yeah, there's always that little bit of scope there to trip them up, and um, generally the 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 gap to from the front to the back is usually exaggerated a little bit if you if you um, curtail testing time. But um, again, I don't see anything fundamental changing. Well, now I've got a, a dangerous question for you, Scott, from Richard Rowe. Which is the most exciting driver pairing this year? That's the relatively non-controversial bit. And which is the most underwhelming? It's not controversial at all. It's actually really easy for me to pick my answer for the second one. I'm going to go for the most exciting one first. Um, I've picked McLaren for this because uh, while I think that there is obviously some fascinating stories elsewhere, uh, I, re- I really like Ricardo, and I'm, fascinating to see, I'm fascinated to see how Norris does against him. Um, there's a lot of, at stake there, I think, between the, the pair of them. Obviously, Ricardo's going there. He's still missing out that opportunity to be uh, a world champion. And uh, he obviously saw off Esteban Ocon very comfortably at, at Renault. Norris is a, is another challenge. So, you know, there's a little bit of Ricardo, the established driver. He's the one with something to lose. And Norris really needs to prove himself because there is still just that little bit that's missing in terms of Norris absolutely convincing he's a, he's a mega star in, in the making, even though I think he's already proven he's a very, very good Grand Prix driver. Um, plus also McLaren's on this brilliant upward trend. So in terms of um, what that represents and what those driver pairings sort of have to to do on track and off track, I think there's just sort of a a, a slight edge on, on Ferrari, for example, even though how Carlos Sainz Jr. does with his big shot up against an established mega like Charles Leclerc is it's fascinating in its own right. And then Completing my totally unasked for podium <laughs> is the Red Bull pairing because uh, I really think Sergio Perez uh, could transform the legitimacy of the team's championship prospects and that Max Verstappen as a championship uh, contender. And on the most underwhelming side, really simple, Alfa Romeo. Uh, at least Haas has Mick Schumacher, which is a great story and an interesting driver um, on his own merits. Keeping Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi just lacks any kind of inspiration. Uh, Kimmy's going to be very solid. He's going to be a very reliable performer. He's going to extend the record he does not care about in terms of most starts. Um, and he'll have a few amusing sound bites, and, and that'll be his contribution to the season, especially because the team will probably still be at the back. And Giovinazzi's going to have a few great moments and then a bunch of stealth mistakes in otherwise anonymous weekends. So I'd have much preferred to see, I don't know, a Calamilot type or some kind of reprieve for Nico Hulkenberg or Kevin Magnussen just to mix up that dy- dynamic and stop that team becoming a bit of a stale story. Are you going to dissent on any of those, Mark? No, my, my choice for underwhelming would have been exactly the same and, and for similar reasons. I just don't think there's um, the, 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 the energy around that pairing to really drive the team forward. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a lineup that sort of lacks ambition for me. Um, it, it's, it's probably not the lineup that the team itself would choose. It's uh, to an extent being imposed upon it. Um, but yeah, I, I yeah I think I would have liked to seen Magnussen or Hulkenberg probably in the in the in the the Kimi role 
and an exciting newcomer in the in the other in the Giovinazzi car. But um, as for most exciting, yeah, for me it's the Ferrari one because um, Leclerc is freakishly fast at his best. Um, absolutely wonderful driver. Um, Still not quite the full package, um, but, you know, he's developing. Whereas um, Sainz, I think, is further on in his development, and I think he's a more rounded performer. And I think um, he's a very, very shrewd operator. So I think, and his pace is, uh, you know, formidable as well. So I think as as an all-round package, he's um, really, really quite, quite formidable. And it's, I don't think you're going to see a clear number one, number two situation there. And I think that's, I think as you've written a piece um, on Ed, I don't think Ferrari have got a number two there um, that they they think they they have. Yeah, there's nothing too much I disagree with uh, there. Mark, moving on, your next question from Demetrius Bizaz, which I've probably mispronounced, apologies. We've now seen McLaren going for a team principal from outside the F1 sphere and Alpine are getting Davide Brivio in. Should Ferrari do the same in hope of turning its fortunes around? So I guess let's focus this on, does Ferrari need to do something with a team principal role to get a sidle type in, for example? Well, I think um, it's definitely definitely an option they should be looking at. But I think um, in terms of Ferrari's um, situation, which they more or less put themselves in, let's face it, it's very difficult to judge the actual merit of the the team yet because it, it was by its own, let's say, miscalculation or misinterpretation of, of the technical regulations. It was um, put in an emergency situation last, last year. So to try and judge it, um, judge the ability of the team on that season... I think would um, probably be misleading, and I think we we would have to give at least a fair run at um, this coming season to see where that where that team is really at, and to see um, if it has got the stuff required to put it back um, as a as a championship contender where it belongs. Um, and if not, then yes, perhaps there should be um, they should be thinking of changing the roles somewhat at the top. Yeah, I think it's important to let this play out because we do criticise Ferrari sometimes for instability. And I think if they were going to dispense with Mattia Bonotto, the time to do it was once all that engine controversy had, had, had really blown up. Now they've they, they've gone with him. They need to see how this phase works out. And probably I'd argue even the 2022 project because this year and next year are inextricably linked in terms of what's going on to really judge that. You can't kind of back a horse and then back out of it halfway through. You need to let it play out otherwise you just get stuck in a spiral yeah i think i think the main thing to remember is that ferrari has or did genuinely try to buy into this need for a culture change and louis camilleri when he was ceo talked very often and enthusiastically about this and i think i remember there was one interview he did where he said that there there was just this revolving door policy at marinello and he was bringing an end to that not I want to bring an end to that or we need to bring an end to that. I am bringing an end to that. And him and Bonotto constantly espoused the need for consistency. You remember when they had that awful start to 2020, they committed to a response and there was the slight reorganization on the technical side and they 
they created that amusingly titled what was it was it like the performance development division or, or something like that as if they just suddenly decided that if they created some performance that would be the way to get out of their lack of performance um but they did that with the ne- exist- next up they'll create the the wind development division what do we want to do let's that, develop that do you remember that that was actually a little bit of what Maurizio Ruva Beno sort of wanted at the end of 2018 when he was basically saying yeah we need to know how we need to learn how to win again we need a winning culture I remember actually the BBC's Andrew Benson having quite a passionate exchange with Maurizio about that um, but the point is that Ferrari has tried to adopt and embrace this much, you know, they, they want to try and live the the culture that they want to to represent. And binning off Bonotto now would just be a complete betrayal of that. And it would just be a return to, to the old time. So I completely agree. I think they need to buy into it. It's a little bit like at, at McLaren, I think. Andreas Seidel, obviously he's, he's the subject of, um, or the sort of the unnamed subject of the first part of that question from, from, from Dimitris you know, Seidel bought into that project because he knew that it was a long-term one, but he also felt like he did have the long-term backing of the shareholders and of Zach Brown as, as CEO and of the McLaren group itself. They they knew that it was going to take some time. Obviously, it's been brilliant that they've had some, uh, you know, a relatively quick-fire turnaround in Fortune, but they knew that that was going to be a, a long, longer-term one. And actually, sort of picking up on that the final question i think we have uh is for you ed and it's from jake which is how long will it take before mclaren are back on pace with the issue of switching engine suppliers and how likely is it that they can close the gap to red bull yeah i think we should expect mclaren to be in the thick of that congested midfield again this year but given the compromises demanded by carrying over much of the 2020 car it's unavoidable there will be packaging limitations that they'll carry all season there are some key differences in the architecture of the Renault compared to the Mercedes so it will be suboptimal as a as a former McLaren team principal might say I'd be amazed if they close the gap to Red Bull in any meaningful way this year but that's not the objective in that midfield group you've got Ferrari targeting third place Aston Martin doing the same given it really should have been third in 2020 McLaren will want to hang on to it Alpine wasn't far off you've even got AlphaTauri which at its best was at a level that could have allowed it to fight for third but it wasn't at its best often enough so this is a a holding in consolidation season for McLaren I don't want to make it sound too negative because I think they can fight to retain third that's perfectly possible but we can't judge the overall potential and the promise of this renewed McLaren Mercedes alliance based on 21 given the locked in challenges McLaren is the team that is most compromised by the necessary decision to carry over much of last year's cars in terms of their capacity to adapt. But I think longer term, it's much more encouraging. I'd see no reason why they can't aim to hit the ground running in 22 with a new car optimised around the uh, the Mercedes power unit package. And they'll certainly be be wrong if they're not aiming to be a, a at Red Bull level or much, much closer to the front in, in 22. Whether they can, who knows? But we shouldn't see this as anything other than a, a slightly strange and compromised interim year. But I still think they'll get some good results because it's a strong team. And with that probably overly long answer from me in my classic inimitable style, that's all we've got time for. Apologies for not getting through all your questions, but thanks very, very much to all of those of you who did send them in. It's been fun to 
work through them and hopefully give you a little bit more of a taste of the 2021 season to come. Please do remember to head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read on there from Mark Hughes, Scott, myself, Gary Anderson and the rest of the race team. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast and you enjoyed it, do please do so so you get a, a regular dose of the Race F1 podcast and also bring back V10s which tells classic F1 stories. Season 3 of that is up and running. There's a Jensen Button uh, episode looking at his constant attempts to leave BAR and join Williams, which was uh, a massive saga. But David Richards also is, is a guest on that. And I think, Scott, you're on it. Also, check out our YouTube channel. Just search for The Race. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back soon with more from The Race. <laughs>